again as we continue our series in this, this great book. Uh, for those of you with the Pew Bibles in front of you, it's page 1198. As you're turning there, just a little reminder for us. In this book of Titus, the Apostle Paul is seeking to make sure that Titus teaches everyone in these churches in Crete how to make the doctrine of God, the teaching of God, the gospel of God attractive. And we've already considered in chapter 1 how godly elders make the gospel attractive by defending against blemishes in doctrine and by teaching what is sound and what is healthy and what's whole. And in chapter 2, we've already seen how godly men last week make the gospel attractive by being dignified, discerning, and disciplined, being sound in faith, hope, and love. And now we come to see how godly women make the gospel attractive in Titus 2. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding this. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have given us your word. Your word that some hate. But a word that we today acknowledge before you love. And acknowledge as well our gratitude by the fact that you sanctify us by the truth and by the truth of your word. So teach us and set us apart that we might draw the gaze of onlookers to you and magnify your glory and your beauty and your holiness in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read Titus chapter 2. Let me read from verse 1. We're going to just be dealing with verses 3 to 5 today, but let's read from verse 1 and hear what God's Word says. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Amen. This is God's word. <coughs> Excuse me. What is the secret of a woman's true beauty? What's the secret? And who knows the secret? It seems like media and advertising agencies think that they know the secret. It seems like Lorraine Kelly thinks that she knows the secret. Those who address us from, their tele from our television sets or from the magazine stand telling us how cosmetic companies can, and fashion designers tell us that they know the secret. Together with newspaper ads, they tell us the things that make for genuine attractiveness and, and beauty in women. What is it? What's the secret? Well, some will say it's your diet. Some will say it's your muscle tone. 
Some will say it's your wardrobe. Some will say you need charm. Some will say you need dental veneers. Some will say you need shinier hair, sparklier jewelry, hunkier boyfriends or husbands. These are the things that are offered to us. But what does God's word, that pure and perfect, timeless word of truth, have to say to us on a day like this in a culture like this? Well, let's look at Titus 2 together. The first thing I want us to see from Titus 2 is a glorious virtue of a godly older woman. It is true godliness. Look with me at verse 3. Teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. Reverent in behavior. Now this is an interesting thing, isn't it? That's not normally where the world would have a start at all. But here's where God's word has as begin, particularly for our older sisters here today. The word here is derived from two Greek words which refer to holiness and tower. So telling us straight away that true beauty for our older women, older sisters in the faith, lies in you being a tower of godliness. A tower of godliness strong in the faith, living lives that adorn the gospel of God, that attract people by your holiness, holiness that's evident in the decisions that you make, in the way you talk, in the way you live, in the way you raise your kids, in the way you respond to to hearts. In all of these things, our women, Christian women, are called to be towers of godliness. Now that's a glorious virtue, isn't it? Now that, even as we think back to what was written in uh, Proverbs 31 towards the end, you know, charm is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord, now that's attractive. We should expect nothing else from God's word. We should expect nothing else from our women. Because he who is called the beautiful one, Jesus Christ the Lord, indeed when he became man had no outward beauty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, as Isaiah 53 tells us. In other words, and so miss him. Yet by his humble sacrifice, by the, by the, the magnificence of his godliness towering above all, we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only. You see how godliness magnifies God, magnifies Jesus Christ. Sisters, in the faith, we need to hear words like this today in a culture that we live in today. And we need to hear afresh words like 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4 tell us that your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in in God's sight. Older sisters, understand this quite clearly. You make the gospel wonderfully attractive when you strive by God's grace to be towers of godliness. There's nothing so off-putting, is there, as an unattractive, as ungodly women. 
And this is indeed what Titus, in a sense, goes on, uh, uh, what Paul goes on to teach Titus about. Not only do we have the the glorious virtue of older women, we have, secondly, the grotesque vices of ungodly women. It's unattractive, dare I say it, ugly, when older women are unable to control their tongue. Look with me again at verse 3. Teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers. Not to be slanderers. Well, what is slander? Essentially, it's malicious gossip. Using your mouth to tear down rather than build up. Slander does things like fabricating truth and uh, uh, fabricates charges and pretends that they are truth. You know the interesting thing about this, this verse here? This word, slanderers. It's the Greek word diab, diab, I can't even say it, diabolos, which is the same word that's used 34 times in the New Testament to refer to Satan. That's telling, isn't it? Satan, of course, is the malicious slanderer, accusing, hating believers, tearing down, not building up. So Puritan Thomas Watson on the back of that says, he or she who raises a slander carries the devil in his or her tongue. And indeed, he that, or she that receives that slander carries the devil in his or her ear. So ladies, when you are unable to control your tongue, you can look more like a child of the devil than you can look like a child of God. And you will not commend the gospel to people by conducting yourself in those ways. Indeed, you will repel people. You'll not draw. You'll not attract. Similarly, it's unattractive when older women are unable to control their appetite. As we see, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine. Listen, an inability to control one's appetite to the extent where a woman can be governed by an addiction instead of by the gospel of God does not commend the beauty of Christ to the world. Indeed, by that level of ungodliness, you commend other things above Christ. And many say, well, I'm not addicted to much wine. And that may be true. But let's understand clearly that the range of addictions are fast. And the pressures of, uh, and strains of life can cause many to pursue addictions. I mean, you may be lonely. You may be lazy. Like some of the women in Crete who, in their ungodliness, just dulled their senses. They were idle. They were not working well. They were not working for the benefits of their families. They were wasting time. They were getting drunk. For many, it was not just disobedience, but escapism in some sense. Some kind of refuge from the humdrum of life. But it's a false refuge. Their delight is not in God. Instead, they put their hope in whatever it is they think serves them, whether that's an addiction to wine. Or an addiction to anything else. What's yours? If you're not primarily pursuing Christ by living godly lives, dear sister, what, what is it? 
What is it that you value and treasure above him? What, is, what are you risking becoming addicted to before Christ? Some put their hope in wine, some in drugs, some in novels, just to dumb down and, and numb their senses. Some Facebook, some internet activity. It can be, it can be anything. But these things dear sisters, understand these things do not serve you. They numb you and never cultivate the godliness in you which will commend the gospel to the world. And I don't say these things with insensitivity. I hope you understand. I I personally have known in my past before becoming a Christian, I know what it's like to have an addiction. I know what it's like also to live with someone who has an addiction. Addictions are particularly difficult to break free from. That's why we need God's word of truth to sanctify our hearts, don't we? That's why we need brothers and sisters around us to act as accountability partners for us who will support us in prayer, who will be loving enough towards us to point out our ungodliness so that we might then seek with their help and particularly with the Spirit's help to change our hearts and minds to be more and more in line with Christ. We need to remember the grace of God in all of these matters, friends, because it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's not your efforts. It's the grace of God alone. It's the grace of God which gives us divine power to defeat such ungodly, grotesque vices which serve to repel people rather than attract people. Is what 2 Peter says, doesn't it? In chapter 1. Great, great words. Oh, I've, I have camped on these verses so many times. His divine power. That's what it starts with. That's what the Christian life continues with. His divine power has given us what? Everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and by his own goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and, there's the word, escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires, unholy, ungodly appetites that will strangle the life out of you rather than give you life. Dear sisters, you can realistically put off those grotesque vices of ungodliness through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and in him become towers of godliness. This is the offer that is held out for each of you. Indeed, this is the challenge that is held out for each of you, dear sisters, in the faith. And know that It's not just your reputation that's at stake in this. It's the Lord's. It's your contribution of godliness to the whole church, walking as towers of godliness that we might shine all the more brighter and be all the more conspicuous for Christ. Yes? Isn't that what we want? You see how important this is, even in our daily lives, to commend the gospel and to grow in godliness. Well, if if women, older women, are not to be involved in these vices, what are they to be involved in? Well, this is exactly what, what Paul goes on to teach 
Titus in verse 4. And here we see the great vocation of godly older women. Teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women. What great words. And here we have an instance, another instance in Scripture where one generation is to commend and teach and train a subsequent generation. It's, it, it's seen throughout Scripture. In Psalm 78, for example, the older generation is called to proclaim to the younger generation the glorious deeds of God, His deliverance, His faithfulness, His great righteousness. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, which we often use whenever we are dedicating a family or dedicating a child, that we see this heritage of the Christian faith and good, sound, healthy, whole doctrine is passed through the family from parents to children. And what we see here in, in verse 4 is that Titus is to teach the older women the invaluable benefits of investing in the younger women. Instead of using devilish tongues to tear down, now it's time, as if Paul says, it's as if he says, now it's time to redeem the use of those tongues for godliness by building up your younger sisters in the faith. What great possibilities lie before us as a church to grasp the importance of an instruction like that. How the older sisters in our nation, in churches throughout this nation, need to hear this call to godliness and need to hear this call to invest in the lives of our younger women in the faith to teach them also to grow up to be towers of godliness. Dear sisters in the faith, older sisters in particular, are you taking a deliberate interest in the lives of the younger women here in Charlotte Chapel? Are you making a point of teaching what is good and training them to be godly in the way they live? And I'm not just talking about egging them on from a distance. I'm not just talking about praying for them, although those two things are essential. I'm talking about a close quarters type of mentoring role. And here again, we just see, as we were seeing last week, the possibilities of the multiplication of godly young women who by belief and behavior are able to silence those who oppose Jesus Christ are able to commend the word of God and are able to adorn the good teaching of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear women in the faith, those of you who are more mature in your faith, all around you in this church are women who are not as mature as you. Many of them are, sure, born-again believers, but it's quite possible that many of them have not had healthy, nurturing relationships where they've been properly discipled and encouraged and brought on in the faith. And unless older women take responsibility for teaching the younger women in this respect, there is a risk that the teaching of such godliness may not happen. It's interesting to see here in Titus chapter 2 that Paul encourages Titus 
to teach every group in the, ter- in the church. Older, older men and young men, older women, even as we'll go on to in future weeks, slaves, every group except young women. Teaching and training young women in godly womanhood is primarily the responsibility of the older women. And we can understand this in terms of the appropriateness of male elders or pastors in a church. It's vital that women in women's ministries take up this, this, this word of God, this, this command of the word to teach what is good and to train the younger women up. So what are the obstacles to this happening? What are the things that get in the way? What are the things which cause the older women not to invest and the younger women not to seek that investment? Well, many churches can operate on the basis of age-specific ministries. That can be a barrier. That's a good thing. I'm not, I'm not uh, denigrating that whatsoever. But, but we should be a church that understands that we need ministries that transcend age as well as keeping and having those kind of age-specific ministries. In another sense, different generations sometimes have different understandings of ministry. I mean, young women may expect more formal mentoring and teaching. I'm speaking from experience of what I've heard. Uh, While older women may prefer just the, the friendliness of mentorship without the actual teaching. In addition, another obstacle, it can be quite hard to find time and energy for discipleship after work for those young women who are working or indeed even after just looking after the family. Indeed, the majority of married women with children may indeed return to work pretty soon after their children go to school, sometimes for financial reasons, also sometimes because of pressures of materialism, careerism, even feminism, and it can leave little time for women to minister to women. And I believe churches miss out and lose out. Indeed, even on the matter of the feminization of our culture, it can actually leave women here in churches feeling embarrassed to talk about womanhood and to pass on skills that are particularly good and helpful for women to learn. We need to think about these obstacles. We need to think about how we can uh, just hurdle these and continue on, indeed, in the instruction, the plain instruction of God's Word. Teach what is good. That's the proviso, isn't it? Teach what is good. Young women need your input, older sisters. They need you to share your life with them, your struggles with them. They need you to read through books of the Bible with them. You have more than likely, in most cases, spent so much more time than they have under the hearing of God's Word, whether it's from a pulpit like this or simply in uh, Bible studies that you have sat with or even just in Bible study in your home. You have the great ability to invest in these younger women. And even still, invite the young single women into your home as well. Even let them see some of the struggles that go on in family life so that this young woman does not tend to idolize marriage, because that's a risk, but indeed teach her to see that singleness is not a waiting room for a marriage, but a very real opportunity for service for Christ. 
and give practical help to the single mum who struggles to keep home in order because she must go out to work. There are plenty of ways which you can invest, older sisters, in the younger women in this church for good and for their godliness. Teach and train what is good. What in particular? I mean, let's get practical here. This is exactly what Paul goes on to do with Titus. Look again at verse 4. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. These are essentially the attractive virtues of a godly young woman. They're the attractive virtues of godly women, full stop. And here we have seven things in particular where Paul says, Let's get practical. Let's talk about these things. What, what, what does it mean to teach what is good? Paul, tell us what is good. Well, these things are good. It all starts with love. Always does. Love your husband. Is it hard to love your husband, dear sister? It can be. Your husband's a sinner. Sure, he's saved by grace, but boy, that sinful nature protrudes at times, doesn't it? You just want to throw it back in there. Remind one another of the grace of the gospel. You're married to a sinner. It's not going to be easy to love your husband. There are two particular problems in this. You either love, you, you either hate the sinfulness of your husband, or actually you love all the time that you spend on yourself. So it's not just the sinfulness of your husband, it's your sinful, prideful self. That's the problem as well. Sometimes it's easier to love yourself than it is to love the Lord and love your husband and love your children. This is, I think, what Paul is getting at here with the emphasis that in the family, the highest priority of a young wife is to love your husband. In fact, Paul placing the commitment to one's husband first, even before the children, in, in order of, of duty and delight. It's interesting. It's an important word for us. What what commonly robs you, dear sister, of your love for your husband? Is it anger? Is it bitterness? Is it pride? Is it unforgiveness? Is it the keeping of grudges? What is it? And how can you put those things to death? The second thing, very practically, love your children. God values children. We know this. He places great importance on teaching children to love and serve him. You explored that a little bit as you walked through as a church. Exodus, you know, one of the main aspects of, of remembering the Passover, remember, you've got to do this regularly, regularly, re regularly. Remember how I've saved you. Pass this on to your children. When your little kid beside you comes up and says, Daddy, what are you doing with the lamb? I'm paraphrasing. You know, you say, well, this is a reminder for us of the blood that was shed so that we might have redemption from our oppressors in Egypt. And they say, in the same way, teach our children. There's great value in God's eyes in that. Of course, we know Jesus became indignant when disciples didn't value the worth of children in God's expanding kingdom as well. They're an absolute 
blessing to us. We are to take great care to set them a good example, to teach them well. These are the practical ways that we love them and we demonstrate our love for them through sacrifice, through caring for them well, through nurturing them, by reading to them, by playing with them, by disciplining them. Yes, disciplining them. Remember the incredible role that you have to play, in particular, young women, in the nurturing of your child. Or if you're single, or if you're younger and you're considering marriage, think this through even in advance, if the Lord wills for you to be married. Think how you can do these things. Think of the great investment that you can make in shaping this young person's life. It was Wesley, wasn't it? One of them. can't remember which one. Uh, Charles, I think, who said, I learned more about Christianity from my mother than all of the theologians in England. How great would it be if the testimony of our children in Charlotte Chapel were able to say that? It's a beautiful thing. Love your children. How do you feel about being a mother, dear sister? How do you feel about that? Is your heart welling up with joy? Sure, we know it's hard. It is hard. But are you rejoicing at the gift that God has given you? Sure, you might struggle. But do you delight in your kids? Do you delight to teach them and love them and encourage them and bring them on? Are your desires for your children completely in line with God's desires for your children? These are important questions to consider. Not only are you to love your husband and love your children, practically you're to love self-control. Be self-controlled, it says in the start of verse 5. I'm not going to major on this. We dealt with this last week. It's the same word that's used uh, in relation to the men. So it's to, have, it's to act like one who has a saved mind. In other words, love thinking on the things of godliness and love figuring out ways which you can practically put those those godly aspects of life into practice. Quite simply, what desires and appetites are you struggling to keep in check, dear sister? And how can the godly virtue of self-control act as something of a firewall for your heart? You know, blocking the unauthorized access so that you might just enjoy the way in which God is seeking to shape you in the faith. Not only are you to love your husband, love your children, love self-control, you are to love sexual purity. This is what verse 5 hints at here when it mentions the word purity. It's a reference really to, to chastity. In other words, to have no sexual relations outside of marriage and total faithfulness within the covenant of marriage. What temptations are there in our world that, that throw their themselves at the feet of our women. I mean, there's an assault on our dear sisters in the faith. Again, from magazines, from TV programs, which practically advertise sexual promiscuity. It's a good thing, they say. Nobody really gets hurt, they say. Well, what a lot of nonsense. I've seen it tear families apart. 
and you're welcome to come and ask me for, for examples. Love self-control. It's a good thing. Sometimes when you're being self-controlled and disciplined in your life, it feels like a bad thing. It feels like you're being robbed of some kind of satisfaction. But you're not. Because submission to Christ and doing the will of God is a far greater joy and a far greater satisfaction than anything else the world could serve up on your plate. So be self-controlled and love self-control. What temptations, dear sister, are you hiding from others? That's a good question to help disclose what's going on where, you're, where you have a lack of self-control. And have you thought about even confessing these things to a dear sister and seeking accountability in these matters? Not only are you to love your husband, love your children, love self-control, love sexual purity, you're to love your home. Verse 5 continues... Train the younger women to love their husbands, children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home. Now, the Bible does not say that wives and mothers are not allowed to work outside the four walls of their house. Instead, what we have in God's word are examples of godly women who have worked in other settings and earned extra income, but never to the neglect of their responsibilities, primary responsibilities in their homes. So, for example, the Proverbs 31 woman is one such model. During her lifetime, she pursued many endeavors beyond the confines of her home. I hope you recognize that. She worked among the poor and needy. She traveled. She bought property, planted vineyards. She made clothes and sold them. But her primary goal in all of these, amid all of these enterprises was to serve her family and her home. And this woman's attentiveness really is set out for us as God's standard for the conduct of our women today. Some doubt that. Some think, that's a quaint little Proverbs 31 woman. But God's word is timeless, brothers and sisters. And these things should not be frowned upon. These things should not be denigrated. But these great truths of God's word should be upheld. And I think J.B. Phillips really captured this wonderfully in his translation when he said, women are to be home lovers. Love your home. Now, being busy at home, particularly in the care of kids and the running of the household, is no easy task. And the thing is, such a role holds no real distinction in our culture. Some are ridiculed because they choose to stay at home and look after the kids. That's absolutely crazy. Once in a while, when Catherine gets sick, I take over the care of little Sarah and the keeping of the house. I didn't know to-do lists could be so long. You could practically put a border around your living room with the the length of these to-do lists, but that's good. But you know what? When Catherine gets better, I go back to work for a rest. 
I mean, they work so hard. Our, our dear sisters work so hard. Now, I want to say that I work really hard in the office, okay? <laughs> I, uh, respect. Do I get an amen? <laughs> but the point is, I mean, I work really hard. But still, what a work. I think our dear sisters who have raised children or who are currently raising children need to be commended, need to be held up need to be honored in a society where they're looked down on. No, no, we need to say here is the true attractiveness of our women. Let's honor them. Honor them in every respect. That keeping the household is a full-time job requiring masses of energy and masses of organizational ability. It takes more skill, more energy, more heart, more effort, I believe, than any other job on this earth. So, How does this call to be lovers of home challenge your view, dear sisters, of your homely responsibilities? And are there attitudes or practices that you need to change in order to align yourself with God's design for the household? Important questions. Moving on. Love being kind. Love practicing kindness. This denotes the nature of your activity. Whatever you do, show kindness. Whether it's to your neighbor, show kindness. Whether it's to the people that you pass in the street, show kindness. Whether it is to those that you work beside, show kindness. Let them see that you are selfless. But not to the extent where you're just not serving your own interests, but you are practically active in serving the interests of others. Show kindness in many respects. Indeed, if you ask people around you to describe one or two things about you, would they note your kindness? Maybe some of you are showing kindness but not really getting much feedback from it or not much thanks. Don't don't let that weary you. Don't let that stop you at all. Because the promises of rewards both in this life for your husband, for your children, for your family, for your church and its example of uh, and in its witness. And for your, the promises of rewards in later, uh, later in glory, provide fresh incentive for you to press on. Keep on being kind. Keep on showing kindness. And then lastly, love marital submission. In other words, godly women are called to honor. You're shifting. I can see it. Godly women are called to honor the place that God has given them, their husbands, to love them, lead them, protect them, and provide for them. To appreciate what God has called on wives to do in terms of their submission to their husband. In respect of what God has called their husbands to do in terms of their love for their wives. Remember Ephesians 5? This is not the time or place to go into a massive debate on this at all or a treatise on this. Indeed, I would, I would actually encourage you. My first assignment here in, in Charlotte Chapel was to address your men on this particular issue, on how to love their wives as Christ loved the church, how to fulfill the biblical responsibilities of true biblical manhood. And I would encourage you to listen to that message. If you don't get the opportunity to download things, Maybe, maybe if you don't do email or, or computers or anything like that, ask me. I will give you a copy of my full manuscript. 
If it makes sense, wonderful. Uh, you, can, you can pour through that and you can look up the text that I addressed in there in terms of a man's responsibility to love, to lead, to protect, and to provide. And if it's wrong, come and tell me. We'll have a chat about it. Men are called to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. How did he do that? By giving himself up for her. It's sacrifice. So men are called to be wary of the sin of abdication of responsibility by not loving their wives and by not leading their wives. But they are also severely warned against the other error, the sin of domination, of abuse. This is not, I repeat, not what God's word has in mind whatsoever. This is mutual love. This is a recognition that God, by his sovereign creation, has designed certain order of things in family life for husbands and wives and the thing that brings greatest blessing to families greatest blessings to women who are married and men who are married is not to throw off or reject or rebel against such order but to embrace it to embrace it and to put it into practice at the best of our ability and this core of family life, of biblical manhood, and indeed of womanhood, like we're thinking through today, it does clash with prevailing notions in our culture, in a general sense, not just in those who are particularly fond of of the feminine argument, but contrary to what the culture cries, the Bible insists that our women, godly young women, will find freedom, joy, and liberation, not in casting off God's design, but truly in embracing it. Here's why. For all of those seven things, in shaping our dear women to be towers of godliness, here's why. Let's not forget the big picture in Titus 2. The goal the goal of towers of godliness, seriously godly women, is to frame the magnificence of Christ and to draw the gaze of the onlooker to behold him in the beauty of his holiness, in the wonders of his perfections, to understand the greatness of of his grace that is held out for all and people need to be attracted to it because as we have already thought about in one or two things in this message today and as we know even from our own personal experience of having family members and friends people in this city who stay next door to us who do not know Jesus they are attracted to a whole lot of things which will strangle the life out of them and that will consign them to a fiery hell And they need the church. They need Charlotte Chapel to magnify the glory of Christ, to be towers of godliness so that we can commend Jesus Christ to them and not repel them, but attract them so that we can then commentate on the glorious picture of Calvary, saying, he died for every single one of your sins if you will only put your faith and trust in him. This, what you are pursuing, is dross. It's loss. This, Jesus Christ, cross, forgiveness, it's gain. Follow him. Repent. Turn. Brothers and sisters, make much. Make much of Jesus Christ in Charlotte Chapel. Let the light 
shine brighter. Let your passions be fanned into flame. Live gospel lives that commend your Savior and then speak gospel words. Make the gospel attractive. Make much of Jesus Christ. Isn't he worthy of every single one of our efforts? Is he? He is. For all he has done for us and for all he has called us to do, for all he has promised regarding his divine power, which gives us everything we as a church need for life and godliness, let's pursue this together. Dear sisters, pursue godly womanhood. Be towers of godliness and show off Jesus Christ to this world. Let's pray together.